they just have like bigger balls than we do, basically. Welcome to the Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, could be your AP Stats teacher, Thomas Smiley, and we're here to talk about Legacy. Uh, over the summer, I was kind of complaining about being bored because I wasn't working, but now that I'm back to work, I miss the summer. Yeah, I bet, man. It, it sucks. The traffic's been like out of control this week in Boston. Everybody's back to work, and uh, it, it definitely sucks. College kids are moving in. Hopefully, or actually, fortunately, I get to skip the Boston traffic, but we are back on the grind. Yeah, so when I agreed to do this podcast, I wasn't aware that I would be missing Jets football at any point. So we might have to uh, reevaluate this Monday night recording schedule during football season. Yeah, I mean, or just give it a few weeks because the Jets won't be in any relevant games for the rest of the season. Bro, they have 50 points right now. I don't give a shit. They're the Jets. Sam Darnold, bro. For real. <laughs> Clicking like Golden State. We will see how the season develops. <laughs> Very happy to be a Patriots fan. Yeah, no. I, I can't blame you, man. Patriots look good, too. So, yeah. Did you get to play any Legacy this week? I didn't. I was sort of hunkered down just trying to get as much planning and prep done to make the transition to getting back to work easier. I'm starting to hit that point now where I have a little bit of free time, but I haven't done much more than a league or two online. Yeah, I'm in about the same situation. I actually played the challenge yesterday and uh, two leagues while I was doing that. Uh, I just played that Noble Rug deck. It was fair. I had like a 500 record overall yesterday. Not great at all. But it seems like... uh, a lot of the decks that I faced in the challenge were the decks that you'd expect, like, you know, Miracles, Grixis Control, Death and Taxes. And it seems like we kind of have a stale meta, no big events this week. So I think this is a good week to have our first guest on. Yeah, I think that's great. Maybe we should look somebody up, try to get somebody on the cast. We can <laughs> just cut the audio right now and make it seem like they're already here. Yeah, so, like, we focus on Legacy... But in the style of leaving a legacy, we kind of branch out into the uh, the legacy lifestyle realm. And I think that's kind of what this episode is going to be, because we have a great guest, and that's uh, Mr. James Shu, the host of the Humans of Magic podcast. Yeah, I want to kind of discuss more of like what legacy means to us. So James, you want to introduce yourself? Hey guys. Hey, hey Ian. Hey Tom. Thanks for having me on the show. So yeah, James and I, we've been in some chats together and stuff, and we actually got to hang out in Seattle at the uh, Grand Prix earlier this year. And what I love about James is we're both very serious, competitive legacy players, but I don't think we've ever really had in-depth like magic discussions because we just talk about life stuff. Like We have a lot of non-magic-related interests in common, like tech, travel, hip-hop international political economics the wire stuff like that and i feel like your podcast is amazing for that james because you really 
like sort of get behind the curtain with people and talk about not magic stuff, which I think is a huge part of what this community is too. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate that. I, that's, that's, that's really it. I mean, I, I am very competitive when it comes to playing magic or legacy as it were, but I also really enjoy just talking to people about stuff. So Ian, when we met in Seattle earlier this year, really felt like we connected because of all these other interests that we had in common. Yeah, man. And it's not everybody, right? And getting ready for this episode, I was kind of like storyboarding why we play Legacy, right? Like what the reasons are. And there are some technical reasons like, you know, the play patterns and stuff. But a big one, I think you're lying to yourself unless you're one of like the top echelon pros who can go to some legacy events, like think like Reed Duke or something could, you know, casually play a few legacy events a year and have it fit in with their overall goal of being on the pro tour and everything. People like us, we're playing for a different reason. And I think, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves about what that reason might be. And I think it's, you know, the community is a big part of it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's what's kept me in the game for all these years for someone like myself who really only plays a few major tournaments a year and I don't consider myself a grinder at all. It's just really nice to be able to travel to some events and meet some cool new people and also to catch up with other people that I hadn't seen in a while. Yeah, so you played at uh, Eternal Weekend recently, right? The, the one in Asia? That's right. It was the Eternal Weekend in Japan in Yokohama. I th- believe it's wow time flies time time travels quickly i that was about a month ago if i remember correctly do you want to talk about that at all just i guess uh first of all where was it you said yokohama is that that's in japan yes yokohama is located so i'm not the greatest with geography or japanese geography but it's very close to tokyo so what I did was, I'm based in Beijing now, so I, I flew to Tokyo, it was about a three-hour flight, and then from Tokyo, I think it was about an hour drive away uh, to get to Yokohama, and so, yeah, it's the first time I've done something like this, kind of on a whim, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. What, what uh, deck did you play? So the Eternal Weekend there had a, a Legacy and a Vintage event, I had never played vintage before. I didn't have a deck, so I'm just going to talk about legacy since this is a legacy podcast anyway. And so I played Grixis Delver. I played something that was very similar to Jonathan Sukenik's deck that he played at the Pro Tour. It had some discard spells like Inquisitions and Thought Seizes. It had Bitter Blossoms, and it had the rest of the good Delver stuff. So that was the deck that I chose to do battle with. I love that deck. The number of true names that he ran just makes me all warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah, it takes a very special kind of player to play a deck with lots of bitter blossoms, three to four true name nemeses, and no basic lands. And I basically took a little bit of his list and combined it with a list that Bob Huang has sent me, which had a basic island and young pyromancers. So it was a it was a strange brew, I guess. It had I can't remember how many pyromancers I ran. I think it was two, and I ran two bitter blossoms. So it was kind of a hedge between two different styles. And uh yeah, it was uh it was a fun deck. I mean I've I played Grixis Delver for 
all the way I, basically i played grixis delbert for about a, a year prior to the banning and this is kind of my way to to keep that going yo how good were the pyromancers for you i'm curious so the pyromancers were not very good when i only ran two or three i actually ended up running four at gp richmond later i, I know i'm kind of jumping between different events but but i found that having two or three was suboptimal because you felt like you needed to protect it when you jam pyromancer on turn two whereas if you run a full set of four it doesn't really matter you you, you jam one it dies you just play another one i think that's really the best way to to play the deck is to be more aggressive and and that and so i, I think four is actually the correct number based on my play style and how how it's, the deck has evolved for me over the past couple of weeks so playing the rug deck that I'm playing, I would 100% agree with those sentiments. I either want to have zero pyromancers or I want to be all in on pyromancers for pretty much the exact same reason that you mentioned. Because at some point, you're going to have to choose between deploying it with no mana up, you know, no interaction up, or you know, saving it for a better spot and then possibly never getting a chance to deploy it. Is that what you were running into? Because you don't even have a mana dork anymore, so I imagine the mana is even tighter for you. Yeah, you basically always want to have it in your opening hand. You always want to try and jam it on turn two. Obviously, if you have days backup, that's better. But it's okay if it young pyromancer dies. You just play another one and you try to. Yeah, so I 100% I agree with you. I, I it, it literally dies to everything in the format. So you, I think running four is, I, is it four or zero is correct as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience as well. So yeah, how did uh did you already say how your tournament went? Your uh, Grand Prix Richmond. Uh, so just to finish the thought about Eternal Weekend, the Legacy event wasn't didn't go super well for me. I basically played the deck without doing any testing. I know I should not have done that. And I think it was a combination of nerves and inexperience with the deck. So I had a pretty mediocre, I would say around 500 record. I just decided to play it out because I was already there and I had nothing else to do. And so, but, but I have to say though, this is a kind of a digression. It's the first time I had played Magic of any kind in Japan, and I found found it to be extremely mentally taxing to play Magic for the first time there. Now, was that just because of the sort of travel time and being out of your sort of element, not being in at home, or was it something else? I think it's a combination of 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 everything you said, Tom. I also had a similar experience in Japan as you had in GP Richmond where the travel was extremely tiring and I really didn't get enough sleep before playing in the event. The other aspect of it was just playing in Japan. There were these customs and mannerisms that I was not used to. So one of the things that the Japanese players tend to do is to present their sideboard between every... Every game before the match began, they would they would show you the sideboard face down, and and so you could see that there's 15 cards. They would also show you the sideboard after sideboarding, just so that you could see that they have 15 cards. There were other things like them being extremely polite to me 
<laughs> and I and me having to be more polite back to them presenting my cyborg like I, I can't say that these things are really all that tough but it really adds up when you're trying to play in an event in a 10 round event in one day so I would say that it's a combination of the travel the fatigue and also just getting used to playing with a little bit different set of traditions yeah eternal weekends are really rough when it comes to the number of rounds that you play per day, like I believe last year's legacy was 11 rounds. And if you're going into that with no buys, I don't think that there is a tournament around other than eternal weekend where you're playing that number of rounds in a day, even day two of a grand prix. If you finish in the finals, you're only playing 10 rounds. So Playing playing 10 or 11 in a day is a grind that not a lot of people are accustomed to. Yeah, that's why they did away with like the Star City two-day model, right? Because they were playing like 10 rounds a day, and it was just too much. Yeah, moving to the two-day model allowed them to sort of restructure their prize pool, too, to be a little bit more top-heavy, which a lot of players were really kind of in on at the time. Yeah, so... You didn't do well with Grixis Delver at uh, Eternal Weekend in Asia, but you decided to run it back for Richmond with a couple tweaks. Hold on, real quick. I know James said that he finished about 50-50. What, did you finish 5-5? Five and five? Yeah, I believe it was 5-5. Five and five at, I think it was halfway through the tournament, I realized that I had no chance of you know top, top 16 or top 32, but I just decided to, to play it out for fun because uh i was there and i was also watching a whole bunch of my friends who were playing and so yeah basically i finished five and five so a lot of times when magic players and i do this myself have a record like five and five and think it's not good like isn't that what is an expected okayness like, sometimes you're going to show up to a tournament and you're going to win as much as you lose, and nobody's really happy about it. But honestly, going 5-5 five and five is not a bad performance. Yeah, thanks for thanks for saying that. I, I actually think 5-5 five and five is a pretty bad performance, but <laughs> it's just it's just that I wanted to, to play it out and get some reps in with the deck. Uh, I, I'm not, I haven't yet ventured into the realm of playing Magic Online, Due to my addictive personality, I just know that I would get sucked in and never do anything else for the rest of my life. And so I, but I really should have tested the deck more. Uh, so the tournament became a way of testing, basically testing the deck. And as you guys probably know, with legacy events, sometimes you you lose a couple of rounds earlier on, and then you're just in the twilight zone. You're just playing rounds where against players and decks that you had never seen before and that's basically what happened to me I, I started getting into the rat hole and playing against basically non-tier decks and they started beating me as well so it was uh it was a it was a really weird time but i i would say that of the matches where i the matches that i expected to face i actually managed to do fairly well yeah in addition to that it's not just going into the rabbit hole with records early in the tournament. I've noticed that Japanese legacy tournaments 
have some crazy stuff going on when they publish the Legacy Grand Prix lists, when there's a Japanese Legacy Grand Prix, the majority of the lists are non-traditional and have a lot of different things going on. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience just looking at Japanese deck lists in the past. As I always like to say, the four ofs become three ofs and the zero ofs become one ofs. So every once in a while, you just see a card in there and you actually have to look it up to see what it does. But it seems to be working for those players, so hats off to them. Do you think that they're just less afraid to innovate? Or do you think it's like um, that they they just have like bigger balls than we do, basically? So here's my theory about that. I think that the Japanese as a society are very conformist and communal. And so there's a lot of things that they, they do because it's what the group does. And I think that when they play Magic, they actually want to use it as a channel or forum for individualistic expression. So that's why you'll see people use really weird sleeves or play mats or particular cards in their decks. I think it's a way for them to deviate from the norm. As weird as that sounds, I, I actually think that's a big part of why they tend to run certain strange brews. That makes more sense than any explanation I'd heard before. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Great insight. Yeah, there's a lot of things about the Japanese players in terms of how polite they are and presenting sideboards. And, you know, they're just really nice opponents to play against. I, I would say compared to, I don't want to generalize, but compared to a lot of North American players, they are really pleasant to play against. I had a player who was shuffling my deck and accidentally dropped one of the cards onto the table. He didn't even reveal the card, but he apologized to me at least three or four times and immediately presented the deck back to me. It, that's what I meant when I said that playing in Japan was mentally tiring because if you feel that you have to maintain the same standards of play, then it you have to be a lot more crisp with how you do things. And quite honestly, they make North American players look very sloppy by comparison. So it's entirely different from a cultural perspective. But but yeah, that's just my theory about why they, they may run different cards than we do. I, I think Magic is really a, a, a good way for them to stand out in certain ways. Even though they have, they have mannerisms that are very common between all the players, they do like to to try different things in their decks. Uh, how is that different? Or, like, sort of compare and contrast Magic in China compared to Magic in Japan? Because I'm not super familiar with the differences in the cultures. I'm one of those sloppy North American players that isn't really well-traveled. Well, I, I think there's, there's definitely some similarities between Japanese players and Chinese players. I played in China for quite a bit, but I would definitely say that the Japanese players are on the upper end of the spectrum in terms of being polite and very respectable. <laughs> not to say that Chinese players are not respectable or polite, but I would say that the Chinese players I played against are are simil more similar to North American players in my experience. But there are certain things that the Chinese players also take 
from the Japanese in terms of just simple, just small things. Like before they pick up the cards, they would usually show you that they, they, uh, they, they've drawn seven and put it face down on the table. I believe that's actually something that they took from the Japanese players, if I'm not mistaken, because I've not seen North American players do that so much or maybe it's from the pro tour i i have no idea but i i would just say that chinese players are kind of in between that spectrum between north american and japanese players okay i actually i highly highly recommend doing that just from a play perspective if you fan your cards out on the bottom of the table when you draw your opening seven and then verify that you drew seven if you accidentally put an extra card down since you haven't looked at it the fix from a judging perspective is way better than if you drew them into your hand so everybody should be doing that yeah it's just something that i've started to do not just to begin the game but also when i'm drawing cards with brainstorm or looking at the top three with ponder i tend to put them face down into a pile first before picking them up or looking at them but to each his or her own have you ever cast a ponder and resolved it like a brainstorm? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's definitely happened in non-zero I want to make sure that times. I wasn't the only one. Yeah. Uh, it, it does get tricky at that time, but you just kind of have to try to remember to keep the, the pile separate, as it were. There's one situation I really don't like is when you have three cards in hand and you cast a ponder and you put your three for your hand down and then you count out three. Because then it's like, which one was your hand and which one was the ponder? Do you ever, uh, do you guys ever notice that, like playing in paper? Yeah, I find I find it hard to keep track of which one is which for my opponents. Yeah, exactly. I'm constantly sort of monitoring the number of cards that I have that my opponent has in their hand, and every time there's a ponder in that situation, I'm like keeping my eyes glued to their original hand. To make sure they don't pull some shady shit like throw those three back on top and be like shuffle. Yeah, that's the one reason I don't like the counting out three is that one particular situation. But every other situation I think is it's pretty great. Yeah, I totally agree. So people who know James through Humans of Magic podcast or maybe uh, through group chats or, or like, uh, you know, met him in person, not playing Magic. You're a very polite dude, but at the table, I've noticed you're very minimalist, very precise, and pretty spiky, honestly, for your walking around personality. You seem like, you know, very, very calm, like excitement level two or three out of 10. And then you get pretty intense at the table, actually. And was that, was that like a detriment to you playing in Japan? Oh, that's an interesting observation because I've, never thought of my thought of myself as being very intense when i'm playing magic maybe it's because i can't see myself I, i'm just curious how, what kind of things do you see about me when you see me play magic i'm honestly curious well i feel like you're super concise and you don't ever waste any words like there's no table talk this is just going off watching you play in seattle at the mocks and the grand prix inside events you don't waste any words. You have a good poker face too, but it seems like you know any pleasantries between you and your opponent happened before you shuffled or after the game, the the match slip had been signed, basically. Oh, I see what you mean. 
Honestly, most of the time I'm just really nervous, and that's why I don't say anything. I always head into a match of Magic expecting that I would have to play super well to win the match because I'm just not very experienced or uh, seasoned compared to a lot of the opponents I face. And so I think that's really what it comes down to is really trying to calm myself internally and just do a bunch of self-talk to myself. And that's probably why I don't come off as being the friendliest kind of person. Actually, I find magic table talk mostly to be difficult for me. Not that I'm some kind of sociopath, but it's it's just, it's really hard to talk to somebody, especially as the game is going one way or the other, you're winning or you're losing, without it seem seeming kind of forced. I actually would rather talk to opponents about how the match went and maybe where I misplayed or how I could have played better or how they could have played better. Those kind of things to me are more constructive than actually pleasantries because I, I've actually talked to a, opponents in the past a little bit more and some opponents get very suspicious too. They wonder if you're trying to figure out what deck they're playing or you're trying to get some kind of edge. And so as a result, I, I, I tend to just keep it pretty minimal or quiet these days, if you know what I mean. So hypothetically, if you had an opponent who was closing on a house while you were playing and kept talking to you about that, would that bother you? <laughs> yes. That would absolutely bother me. And also, if he made weird commentary like, uh, ouch, when I dealt one damage to him, <laughs> that would also be very unprofessional, in my opinion. So Noted. Yeah, we're not going to name any names, but that player was special. So, yeah, do you want to get into Richmond? I know that you went. Did you guys hang out at all, you and Tom? Yeah, it was great. We finally got a chance to meet. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's half the fun of going to GPs. And uh, Tom and I finally met, shook hands, and talked a little bit. So that was definitely one of the highlights of my, my trip there. Yeah, I can't remember how I was when we finally met up. Depending on the number of losses that I have during the day, I'm either in a great mood or a not-so-great mood, and I think that I had talked to you after my second loss. So I probably wasn't, like, the cheeriest, but I wasn't out yet, so it wasn't the worst. Yeah, you were pretty pleasant, if I remember. <laughs> Maybe that means you're not normally pleasant, but... Well, yeah, I mean, it. again, it depends on how I'm doing. There have been some times where I 100% have been a salty raging jerk and i know it but most of the time i try to make sure that i'm having a good time in positive at events i was gonna say i can tell from across the room whether tom won or lost his last round it's just like a totally different person like he's either all jovial slapping people on the back or like he's in the corner charging his phone and his glasses have fogged up because he's just like steaming <laughs> that's it's probably true yeah, I actually, so while we're on this topic, I actually take great pride these days, as perverted as it seems, in being exactly the same, whether I, I've won or lost my last match. I think I was really influenced by a couple of guys I talked to recently that have exhibited extremely high standards of sportsmanship. But I actually really enjoy the fact these days that 
whether I've won or lost, people can't actually put me on whether I've won or lost. So I, I, I think that's actually a good mindset to, to have. I mean, to each his or her own, right? But I, I actually really like the fact that I can still joke with people even if I've lost the, the previous round. And, and so that's why, Tom, if you remember when we were talking, I, I don't think we actually talked that much about magic. I think we just kind of talked about other stuff. That's, that's basically my, my way to talk to people now at tournaments is not ask them about the tournament itself, as weird as that sounds. Yeah, usually if people come up to you and ask how you're doing, it means that they're doing pretty well and they just want to sort of share it. But the way that I, I don't know, sort of approach the between round thing is I just like to blow off whatever I was feeling from the round before. And if they were good feelings and I sort of let it roll. But if I was sort of frustrated with myself or with how my last match went, I just want to make sure that I get it out before I sit down. So I... My emotions are definitely visible, but I want to make sure that it doesn't affect my play for the next round. So I sort of just get it out, get it done, and then go play again. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes when I'm not feeling good after a round for whatever reason, I would just put my headphones on and walk around and basically give off the vibe like as as in you should not talk to me. So maybe I am kind of a dick in that regard, but... I find sometimes it's better just to just to take some time off and go for a walk or something. That sometimes helps as well. So what brand of headphones do you have? Uh, I'm wearing the Beats headphones right now. They're the kind that it's Bluetooth and it's over the year. And the good thing about them is that they actually fold up. So it's pretty good for traveling. Yeah, nothing says fuck off like the Beats over the ear headphones. So that's a good choice. Yeah, thank you. So how did uh, how'd your deck feel in Richmond? Oh, the deck actually felt much better in Richmond. I don't know if it was the way I built the deck or just the fact that I finally got to play some weeklies with the deck pr- leading up to the tournament. I, I'm not going to get too much into it. I, I don't think my GP Richmond performance was anything to write home about, but I definitely felt like a lot of the matches were very close and could have gone either way. So for the Richmond event, I basically skewed more towards the Bob Holland direction and played the basic island, played for young pyromancers, and I think I built the sideboard decently, and I only played one Bitter Blossom in the main, and I think it overperformed, and I was very happy overall with the deck. But the results were not so good in the GP itself, but I think I had fun, and if given the choice, I would probably run it back because it's just the type of deck that I enjoy playing. Now, you had a big win in the last round of the tournament. Do you want to talk about that match specifically? Oh, absolutely. I think this is actually why I wanted to come on the podcast and talk to you guys. (laughs) It was against uh, Mr. Jerry Me, and we were just playing for pride because both of us were doing not well at that point in the tournament. But Jerry kept a very speculative hand with no island while he was playing show and tell. And that was in game one. And he actually looked at me and said, James, we're playing. We're not really playing for top eight or anything. So I'm just going to keep this hand. And if I draw an island, I win. I destroy you. If I don't draw an island, you win. 
And so I basically destroyed him uh, in game one. And uh, it was it was a pretty pretty savage pretty savage beating of Jerry, I would have to say. I don't know if it's the most savage beating. I don't know if it's the most savage beating he has received in his life, but it was pretty it was a non game in game one. And I don't remember what happened in game two, but I beat him. So uh, basically 2-0 Jerry super easily. That was easily the easiest match I had in the GP was playing against Mr. Jerry Me. That was fucking great. Yeah, he, he did give me some he gave me some good advice after the match about how to better play against his show and tell deck, but I don't think I actually needed it. I think I just Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fine. Do you take play advice from somebody who you just so thoroughly crushed that they just didn't play? Like I I always hear this argument or I always used to hear this argument from rug delver players when they were playing the mirror where the player who was on the play would play like trop delver and then the opponent on the draw would wasteland and the person who just got wastelanded off of their only land would be like you never wasteland on your turn one you're behind on board that's such a bad play but they just lost the game because of it and people get so salty in that situation that they just like to tell their opponent how no you should never do that it just happened to absolutely crush me yeah i think in that case you probably don't want to take the advice but if i in jerry's defense his his constructive feedback to me was actually not it did not come out of saltiness so he actually gave me some uh, actually actual good advice that i would i would take basically he was saying that when i was playing my discard spells i should have targeted the creatures in his hand as opposed to the enablers like show and tell and i think that was actually a fair that was actually a fair piece of feedback he gave me so he was actually trying to help me play better in the future so i i know what i said just now was uh a little bit came off as a little bit mean but i i actually thought he gave, he gave me good feedback in this case it wasn't it wasn't like the type where uh he lost and was super salty and wanted to tell me that i played bad through some kind of weird advice it was actually a good advice so the only time i remember taking creatures aggressively was when dig through time was legal and emrakul would reshuffle their graveyard to keep him off dig like if all else was equal, like I see a hand that's got one creature and one show and tell, I'm, I'm typically taking the enabler, I think. Yeah, I think there was a I think there was a game where I I play Thoughtseize and he had two show and tells and a creature. So I definitely took the creature in that case. But I wasn't sure if that was correct. If I I guess what he was trying to tell me was that in other instances, if he had just one show and tell and one creature that I might have wanted to take the creature because he said that there were less copies of the creature in, of creatures in his deck. I think there were six or seven as opposed to the enablers because he was running the, what was the card? Arcane Artisan and, and in addition to show and tell and sneak attacks. So I think that was his argument. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I think Arcane Artisan had its weak and people sort of figured it out Delver opponents are leaving in some number of bolts, and I mean, you can you can say that that's fine for the sneak and show player, but I'm not sure that is going to fix your Delver matchup, which is really what you sort of need to get through with that deck. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why you may want to play Grixis Delver these days is because it has a very good show-and-tell matchup. I would say that it's probably better than if you were playing some other deck like Death's Shadow. I could be wrong, but uh, it's definitely a good matchup for a Grixis Delver. What do you think of your Death Shadow matchup as a Grixis Delver player? You know, in theory, I thought it was going to be quite good because of the Young Pyromancers and just being able to to chump block their Death Shadows all day long and also the fact that you have Lightning Bolts to finish them off once they're at 9 or less life. In practice, I played against Death Shadow a few times at the GP and I didn't have great results. I think part of it was possibly variance because I don't want to get too into it, but I think my opponents had some really extraordinary draws at some points. Even if I was on the play in Game 3, I actually lost a couple of matches. I don't know if I played completely correctly. But the other aspect of it is just... There were some really... I played against some really skilled players, and I think that had a, something to do with it as well. So it's hard for me to say because I don't... I haven't put in a ton of reps against Death Shadow. I think it's... I think Grixis Delver is probably... Probably a 55% favorite, but I think I need to play the matchup a little bit more to get, to get, to get, to feel more confident about that. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't really sure, honestly, who had the edge in that matchup. Sometimes they just get you with Temple and like a Delver deck and they drop a Death's Shadow and, or an Angler, and there's not much you can do when you just have Lightning Bolts. The other thing, too, was that I was expecting to face a lot of other decks, so I didn't really hedge against Death's Shadow all that much. For example, if I were running, say, more Dismembers or Fatal Pushes in the 75, I think the match would have been more positive in my favor, but I was really trying to metagame against some of the other decks that I would expect to face that weekend. So, so were you on max bolts, no pushes? Yeah, I was on I was on four bolts and one fork bolt in the main deck, thinking that I did not want any of the spells to be dead against a combo deck. That was my that was my thinking behind the the main deck. I in the past I've sort of alternated between fork bolt, dismember, and fatal push, but for this tournament I decided to go with all burn spells in the main deck. Yeah, that does seem kind of weak against shadow. Yeah, definitely. There are also games where you can stabilize with the angler or a true name and you get back into it. But uh, I, I, I actually did not prepare probably as adequately against Death Shadow as I should have because I remember listening to Tom's report. I think, Tom, you had, you had played against uh, Death Shadow not that many times either, right? But you said that it was all over... It was all over, like it was in, It was played in tables next to you by, by a ton of people, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but I had a pretty good amount of testing against it with the white-blue Delver deck. I probably played 20 pre-board games and then quite a few sideboard games after that in paper testing. And the the deck that I chose to bring just absolutely crushed it. I did see it a lot. But but that was just my personal experience going through Richmond. I played against a version online yesterday that fetched up an overgrown tomb and I was like, Oh shit, what the what the hell's going on, right? Was it just Berserk Decay? It's fucking Rancor, dude. 
he rancored up a Delver, and I, I lost that match. I got fucking smoked because usually I lean hard on my four true names in that matchup, and it didn't work out for me this time. All right. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's just, like, one person screwing around or if that's, like, some sort of idea that's being tested. But uh, it did seem like it, it worked out in that matchup. So how does your Noble de- noble Rug deck match up in general against Death Shadow? Against more more standardized blue-black lists? So, yeah, so I was 8-1 and one before that loss to the Rancor version. So many of the matches felt like nail-biters. So I don't think that it's that that's representative like it's a 89 percent matchup or something like that's absurd it's not but i have to believe it's a positive matchup after those kind of results right you you generally you have stifles right and you have you have your wastelands and stuff so generally you can win that mana denial matchup and they'll probably stick one threat but if you can just have it held off by a true name and then just wait for your second true name or a delver to show up then you just have it. And then you have you have blast post board too, and they don't, so you get more efficient post board. It's tough for the shadow deck to balance its life total against a deck with bolts too. Exactly. Just having just having access to those spells makes their life total math matter a lot more. How many hymns does the deck run? The Death Shadow deck run in the main deck? I've seen zero in the main deck and two to three in the sideboard but i'm not sure if lists have changed since i took a look at them last time okay the reason i ask is because i played against a couple of opponents who appear to have him in their main deck and those were the games that i those were the matches that i got absolutely wrecked you know i i guess that's just legacy if you go turn one thoughtsies turn to him it really doesn't matter at that point what creatures you have to clean up. You just you just basically wreck you you wreck the opponent. So I actually found that to be very effective, uh, and I don't I wasn't sure if that was a standard thing or not. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've definitely seen it main deck too, but I haven't been like analyzing the list and seeing you know if that's like normal for the top performing decks or just someone messing around or what. One thing that I'm having trouble with lately playing online this this I noticed this a lot yesterday is the Death Shadow deck that I played against yesterday had preordains. And the Grixis Control decks that I played against yesterday had multiple preordains. So when you see a start of like Delta C preordain, there's Grixis Control, there's Ant, and there's Death Shadow. And it's unlikely it's Death Shadow because it's not Watery Grave. But between Grixis Control and Ant, you really... I'm having trouble identifying these decks. You know, even turn two, they play a Bloodstained Mire, maybe Brainstorm. You're you're looking for such different things against Grixis Control and Ant in those situations, and you don't have Probe anymore. You don't have, like, when you're playing Rug, you don't have discard spells to find out what's going on. And I feel like I've never really been heavy in the preordain camp for Grixis Control decks, but... I feel like there's some value there now that I'm playing against it and I'm like having trouble identifying the deck. Are they fetching up Underground Sea, the Death Shadow player, just to, just so that you can identify their deck after turn one? Because the, all the matches I played at the GP, they 100% fetch for Watery Grave. Yeah, I think that it was just like one time 
maybe they had a natural underground sea in hand is why this happened. But it happened to me yesterday, and I was like, man, I really did not think they were on Death Shadow when they just go see Preordain. But yeah, just in general, like it, it's it's getting hard to identify the decks with everyone playing Preordain. I also think that it's probably correct to be running more than eight cantrips because decks lost probe. We we talk about how Brainstorm and Ponder make Legacy the format it is because it really reduces variance, smooths your mana, allows you to play a much more consistent game and see your sideboard cards that much more often. I don't see why, other than Thalia and Chalice, that it isn't correct to run Brainstorm, Ponder, and some number of Preordains in any of those Grixis lists, really. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. When I first saw a lot of the Grixis Delver lists or Grixis lists running 10 cantrips, my thought was just that it was a little bit too much. But as I played with it more, I realized that there's basically no drawback to, to running 10 cantrips as opposed to 8. With the exception of the things that you just mentioned, Tom. Especially when you're running a build with young pyromancers, you're just getting some value by by regurgitating and running cantrips over and over again. So I actually really like having 10 cantrips right now. Yeah, playing Delver, I found Preordain is very annoying. But like late in the game when you're not worried about flipping Delvers, I I really do like it. You know, it, it seems basically exactly on a level with ponder so i can understand why the control players had gone to it even before the bannings you were seeing like preordained show up sometimes replacing some number of ponders even and it kind of makes more sense to me now that i've been playing with two preordains so james one thing that i wanted to ask you about is uh are you guys playing any old school in china unfortunately we don't play that much old school i i think there are some players that play but it's not it's not that big. So I took this survey from like, uh, I don't know, somebody posted it on Leaving a Legacy, like the the Wizards typical survey that they put out. And it was asking like, you know, how important are these things to you? Did you guys take the survey also? I did. It was, uh, yeah, it was a very long survey if I remember. Yeah, it's like how important are these things to you? And it's like nostalgia you know, playing with these cards from my childhood or whatever. And I think I would have rated those like a zero typically. But uh, I had to like give like twos and threes because, you know, I've been playing old school lately. And I think that's part of the reason, you know, is just to be playing with these old cards. Uh, I never thought that that was part of the reason why I played Legacy, though. I always thought that the reason that I was playing Legacy, and this is at least what I told myself, is it was the format, the constructed format, where I felt like the the better player or maybe the person who was most prepared or the person who metagamed properly won most often. Like, if you do your stats in Kavu.ru, I always have my best win percentage in Legacy. And maybe that's just me seeing what I want to see in that data. But I always felt like it was the format with the play patterns and the sort of hand sculpting and, you know, just, just the general 
flexibility that, that cantrips give you. The format where you can sort of optimize your win percentage. And I don't know, is that part of it for you guys as well? So for me, I I got into Legacy initially because it was a way for me to play all those cards that I missed out on. There was such a gap between when I play Magic casually way back in 94 all the way to Mirage and Tempest. And then I took a huge break and came back in Time Spiral. And so I missed out on all these crazy cards and interactions over the years. And playing Legacy for me initially was just a way of getting a chance to play those cards. Like you couldn't play those cards in Standard anymore. And I wanted to play objectively powerful cards. But I, I think you're right. Like basically as I started to play more Legacy, I, I drew more towards the blue decks of the format because I had the consistency and the cantrips but it de definitely for me though it wasn't it wasn't that initially that that was the allure of legacy for me I love legacy the most r in reality because I just have the most fun playing it I love the cards in the format I feel like there are the decks that I choose to play in an average game of Legacy, I make way more choices that matter than in a game of Standard or Modern. And I really feel like the f format knowledge, or that format knowledge, is way more important in Legacy. And really, the fact that it is a format that moves a little bit slower then the rest allows somebody like me who really only gets to play once a month to still be competitive. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask too, is whether, because we're sort of at a spot right now where the meta, there are people trying new things, but it does feel kind of like it's reached a settled point, and some people might call it stale if they were playing it too much. And whether that's like a plus or a minus for the format at this point, right? I feel like if I'm going to be playing it every day, it's probably not a good thing. But if I'm going to put my cards down and play like once a month, it's probably a great thing. Well, I think that having a slow moving meta is great if you are trying to break through new ideas. And I know you're doing quite a bit of it with Noble Rug, but really that's sort of just a shell that is time tested. Oh, yeah. And... In reality, the pow the ceiling to break through to get a legacy playable deck is so high that it makes sense that the format doesn't change so much because the established decks are so strong. Yeah, speaking of which, did you see this uh, spoiler card today? This uh, Vindicate, the blue, bl uh, green, black one? Yeah, the one card that I've been really excited about so far. I think everybody on the internet saw it and just sort of sort of started to go crazy for those of you who live under a rock the card is assassin's trophy and it instant speed vindicates but your opponent gets to go get a land like path to exile yeah it seems pretty sick we're gonna do like a, a full set review episode i believe so maybe we should like save our our more in-depth critique of it for that it'll probably be like one or two weeks out still but uh, I was definitely excited about that. I don't know. How'd you feel about it, James? The card definitely looks strong. It will get played. 
I just don't know how many good black green decks there are in the format. Maybe one will need to be created for this. Have you guys played much Bug Control, Bug Delver, or Nickfit recently? To me, that seems like something that this deck could slot. Uh, this this card could slot into. Well, one one thing that I saw this week, not in the challenge lists. Those were really i don't know kind of boring the same same things that we had been seeing but in the deck dump for the legacy leagues this this person teabag tom had a bug deck with strix and leovold and hierarch and goif and true name and him and ponder and thoughtsies and i absolutely love this deck it even had a main deck jit I feel like it would spot or slot directly into this shell. And I don't know how much this deck is going to get from that card, but I I absolutely love this style and this sort of creature suite that this person put together. I would definitely like to test it in that shell. I lost yesterday in a league I want to say I was playing against Captain Ahab, but I'm not positive who it was. But they were playing like a bug Nick fit, like a casual Nick fit. Like I never saw anything ridiculous. The most ridiculous thing that I saw was Tireless Tracker. They had like multiple Jaces, just Veteran Explorer, Cabal Therapy, but you know regular discard spells too so that you're more likely to hit on your first version of Therapy. And then... Uh, I think Goyfs, but, you know, Green Sun Zenus, like four Green Sun Zenus, and just getting a lot of value off tireless trackers and probably exploiting people who aren't playing basic lands, really. We got into some long games, and it turned out that they had six basics in their deck because they ended up, you know, an explorer died and they didn't fetch anything at that point. I think there's maybe like a casual value bug deck with veteran explorers out there. That this card would obviously be perfect for. I think it's perfect for any sort of shardless or bloodbraid strategy because cascading into this is not as bad as abrupt decay. It remains to be seen if there's like a another deck that wants to play four of these. I think that one or two of them, I think, slot right into a lot of the the like bug value or potential bug delver shells. But I don't know about like uh, you know going up to like three or four of them. It just seems to me right now that there is no better time to play basic lands in Legacy. Even before this card got spoiled, it just seems like we're in this format where I think everything is wide open. You can see it as stale, but I see it as pretty wild, wide open right now. And there's just so many things that punish non-basic lands between Price of Progress, Back to Basics, Blood Moon, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Sometimes I have this weird feeling that if I just played a deck that had a whole bunch of basic lands, I would win a lot more of my matches. Do you guys ever get that feeling? That's why I played a deck with a bunch of basics in Richmond. There you go. And this this new card that actually makes me think more than ever that I should just be running Miracles or some version of your Delver deck, Tom. Yeah, I mean, Miracles, miracles gets a lot, right? It's not really affected by this card at all. It probably has a very good matchup against the decks that would play it. I I don't know. Miracles is just so super consistent with a high power level 
that I think a lot more people should be playing it. It does seem about as good as it has been since Top got banned to me. It seems actually probably definitely the best it's been since Top got banned right now. Uh, it's a deck that I'm most scared to play against in queues for sure. Yeah, and shout out to our friend Wilson Hunter. I know that Wilson's been playing Grixis Control for the longest time. And even in even on Sunday of that, that weekend in GP Richmond, he, he top-aided the Legacy PTQ with no other, none other than Miracles. So I think Miracles is back. And a lot of good players are, are running it to some pretty good success, I would say. Oh, that's cool. Do you know what version he was playing? He was running the four the four AK version, accumulated knowledge. Yeah, that seems like it might be a standard now. That's the last two I played against as well. If I remember correctly, it was the full set of AK, monastery mentors, and I don't think it had entreat the angels. It just had uh, mentors and Jace for win conditions. I'm not sure if that's standard now or not. Yeah, I think there are a few versions. There's the one that had accumulated knowledge that our friend Lawrence Harmon wrote the article series on. And then there's a sort of stock Cuneo list that won the Grand Prix, but didn't have the accumulated knowledge tech. Yeah, I would definitely uh, recommend any listeners. I don't know how you're listening to this podcast and didn't also see this post in like uh, Twitter or leaving a legacy or whatever. But Lawrence's article was really awesome. You should check it out if you haven't read it. He did a great job with that. We will leave a link in the show notes. And if you want to play that deck and you don't have the cards for it, get Mana Traders. <laughs> play it online. It is the best way to get experience with a deck from the comfortable spot of your own home in your PJs without a bunch of other people around. Is this podcast sponsored by Mana Traders? No, they won't sponsor us. In fact, they specifically told us that we're not sponsored, but they gave us a discount code because I emailed them a bunch. So if you want to sign up for Mana Traders, there is a referral link and a coupon code that you can use that I'll leave in the show notes. I don't know, man. That sounds like a sponsorship to me. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give us money. <laughs> And I know we told listeners earlier that if you sign up for Mana Traders and you don't like it, don't bother us about that. But Jerry obviously was not listening to that part of the cast because he sent us at least 20 questions setting up his Mana Traders account today. <laughs> so you have become the Mana Traders support. Yeah, we're just the help desk, man. Not Not sponsored. So yeah, anyway... Do you guys have something else you want to dive into? James, did you want to plug your uh, your podcast at all? Got any good guests coming up? Yeah, I have some good guests coming up. I want to keep that secret for now because I, I, I like the I like the serendipity and surprise that comes with the guests uh, and who I may, may or may not have on the show. But yeah, for those of you who are interested in some non-strategic magic talk, Humans of Magic is basically one-on-one interviews that I conduct with a lot of cool magic personalities and we tend to talk about a lot of things so it's usually less strategy and more to do with their experiences in the game their background and their views on a whole bunch of things not just magic it's really a way to get to know some of the the players you may have seen on camera but if you ever wanted to know what 
what's really going on in their lives it's uh it's a pretty it's a pretty good podcast for that so uh yeah you can check it out at humansofmagic.com or just go to soundcloud uh you can also search for humans of magic on soundcloud or itunes you should be able to find it yeah man you've done a great job honestly like some of your episodes recently like i listened to that uh the one with brian gottlieb that was that was amazing you're really doing a great job out there i highly recommend this cast anybody who hasn't listened to it definitely check it out he's got a a pretty sizable what are you on like episode 40 now pretty sizable backlog of episodes yeah i just have fun doing it and and thank you for that for for listening i've had some really cool guests over the the one or two years that i've been doing it and i continue to enjoy doing it a lot so that's basically why i have been trying to keep it up you have any more books that you're writing (laughs) so i'm actually working on a humans of magic book so it's going to take some of the best interviews that i've done with my guests adding more commentary to it and trying to put together some narrative or themes that I found to be very similar between all of the guests. I'm working on that right now and hope that it can be finished by the end of the year. That's so awesome. One of the reasons why I like really enjoy podcasting is that I can get my thoughts and and views sort of out there without actually having to sit down and write. The fact that you're putting a full book together just is mind boggling to me how somebody has the dedication and wherewithal to stick through writing a book. Dude, how, how hard was writing a book? So I wrote my first book two years ago. It was also about magic called magic, the addiction. And it was about my own experiences playing magic and legacy and why I did that. And It was pretty challenging. I think it's different for everybody, but I think if you want to write well, you have to be willing to edit, 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 and really try to put things in a very concise fashion. I I, I think the original draft for my, my first book was probably three times the final product. I ended up cutting out a lot of stuff because there's just a lot of things that don't, carry very well when you're when you're trying to read it and so i would definitely say that it was it was very challenging i actually had to also change some of my daily habits for example i would try to wake up early every morning and try to do some writing before going to work just stuff like that uh it it does take a lot out of you i i I mean you guys are doing a a regular podcast so that's not easy either you know it's 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 really just how much you're willing to dedicate your time towards doing something. At the time, I felt like it was meaningful enough where I, I needed to do it. And so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really interesting experience, I would say. Yeah, we haven't hit the point where we've had the realization that doing all the work for the podcast isn't worth it. So we're still going strong at... I think you got to speak for yourself there, Tom. <laughs> okay. But no, James, I think your book was great, man. And honestly, what I missed... Unlike Tom, I took like a long break from magic and when I when I was first playing there was like the dojo and people would write these like in-depth tournament reports where they like talked about what they ate and like inside jokes, not not inside jokes, but like just a lot more character. You know, not just like you know, opponent 1 played this card, I played that card. I sideboarded this way. 
it was more like more personality in it. And that's the kind of content that I think your book delivered. I was a big fan of your book. Just that sort of like personal aspect of it that like, uh, you know, you got to you got to feel it. And just the, I think the title, I think you killed it with that, too. Yeah, that that title, like super resonated with me. I, I, you know that you like, basically I took, I did take a long break from magic. I haven't been playing straight since 94. And actually you and I were having a conversation about how we're both at pro tour New York in 98 or 99. It was 98 or 99. That sort of started a long break from magic for me because I was playing so much of it that I actually ended up having to go to the hospital at that tournament. <laughs> I, no, oh, this wow. is this is no joke. I uh, know, but I just can't help laughing. I'm sorry. Oh, it's it was crazy. So I got in a car with a bunch of people to go down to the pro tour because uh, Huey was playing playing in it, and a few of the other people who I who were, were part of my old play group were qualified. Uh, Mike Bergoli was another one. And we got to the hotel, checked in, went to the venue, and just for the people that weren't in the pro tour, just started money drafting the whole weekend. And I was 20 hours into just straight playing magic without taking any medicine that I just went off the rails and uh, had to go to the hospital and that was really like a big sort of check for me that I didn't have this under control it's crazy how into this game you can get how how much you can put into it and ignore the sort of basic life things around you and when I read the title of your book that's really brought me back to me sitting in my hospital room bed and Huey and Tom Shea and Mike coming into the room to make sure that I was okay. I didn't play Magic for quite a long time after that. Dude, that's intense. I didn't know that full story. Damn. Yeah, that's something that brings us all together, I think, as a community because we wouldn't be podcasting or writing a book or doing anything like this if we didn't just love Magic so damn much, right? I think the the cool thing about... The world we're in right now is that we can all create content and we can all do this kind of thing even when we're not playing the game that's how crazy our obsession is now where we're not even playing magic but we're talking about magic it's crazy if you think about it sometimes when when you guys are like sort of just walking around doing your day-to-day stuff are you thinking about the game in the back of your head like i do unfortunately yes i am (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it it's a it, sometimes it can be a distraction but i i do tend to think and obsess over magic way too much i think i do that only relative to my event horizon like if i have a tournament even like a month out if it's a grand prix or something then it's just consuming me in that time but like this week for example when there's nothing immediate like i might go to the complex for their one to two k this weekend but I'm not really thinking about that, you know. So I'd say it's completely in, in relation to the proximity of the next big event I'm playing in. Yeah, I feel like I just sort of have this like background process running in my head all the time, trying to like 
come up with what I think is going to be the best positioned and reasons why I would play something and not play something. And I can't stop thinking about it. I should probably see somebody about that. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, man. We don't really do scoops or anything, so I don't know how to work this in. But I just want to say thanks. I played golf with uh, our buddy Jason Grigley. used to run the Sneak and Show group before he abandoned Facebook out of fear. Played golf this weekend. Set up a trade for some old school cards for LobsterCon coming up September 29th. So yeah, shout out to Jason. And uh, I think we had a listener question, right? We did. Also, maybe we're going to open these up to listeners, but we got shirts. Oh, fuck. And they came out so amazing that I just want to talk about them really quickly. I know a ton of other podcasts have done t-shirts and things that you can you can pick up from them. But I I don't know about you guys. I like to dress a little bit nicer than having like a like a big t-shirt with a bunch of screen printed stuff on it that when you wash it it starts to peel off. So we got Nike polos, the dry fit golf ones with our cast logo embroidered on them and they came out looking sweet. So if we get enough interest, we might do a larger order for people who want to pick one up. I don't know if we should open it up to everybody, man. I think it should be like a if you know, you know basis. Okay, I'm I'm just all about look Anybody who wants to put the logo on, put it on. I feel like only James should get one. All right. Do you want to say thank you to anybody, James? I just want to say thanks to you guys for having me on the show. I really enjoy talking to you guys about Legacy. Aww. Yeah, we're going to cut that. You're not allowed to scoop people in on their own cast, man. That's my pet peeve. (laughs) Okay. Let me think. No, I don't have anyone to scoop in other than you guys, so you can cut my stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you listen though man seriously like that that's uh that's awesome and it's really cool you guys have created the 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 polos that that's that it sounds pretty sweet it looks pretty sweet too so it was all tom well i just i wanted one and i i kind of wanted to get it in time for richmond and it came it came like a week and a half late but they they ended up coming out very 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 good but i'm also wondering what what uh you guys are are you guys just planning the the polo shirt or are you also doing other things like play mats and t-shirts and other Ooh, stuff we didn't even we didn't think about that we should we should figure that out yeah i'm just saying whatever you guys are trying to do in in, in bulk i'd love to support you guys uh actually i do want to give a shout out if that's okay no it's too late I'm just <laughs> I want to give a shout out to my friend Wilson Hunter for giving me a lot of advice on the decks that I was playing at the at the GP and also previous events. I also want to give a huge shout out to Julian Knob for getting the Legacy Premier League together and just being a really good friend. We were talking about the book and the podcast. I definitely have to say if there's one person that really got me off my ass and got me to start working on these things, it would actually be Julian. So I want to give a shout out to him. So is that the verified pronunciation of his last name? That's how he says it. So I'm going to go with that. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, the the LPL is so amazing. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't checked out any of the content from that Premier League, it's so worth checking out as soon as possible. The other thing that's really cool is that when Julie and I have been just chatting, he's told me a lot about the production of the LPL from guest selection to producing it to all the technical things. That aspect is really, really cool. And he wasn't sure whether to actually do a podcast or a post on that. I really strongly encourage you encourage you to actually tweet at him and tell him that you want to see that behind the scenes of the LPL if that's something that you're interested in because he spent literally hundreds and hundreds of hours into that thing and we're really fortunate as viewers to just see the final product which ended up really good but there's so much that goes into it and so if you're at all interested from a content perspective definitely let him know you want to find out more about that wonderful I feel like I had asked about our listener question a couple minutes ago, and I, I think we might have not gotten to it. Let's do it now. We had our one email for September. <laughs> we, got, we, got it, we got it early. Our question is from one of our loyal listeners, Stephen Hartford. And I know he's a loyal listener because he said that he's a loyal listener in his email. And... He is one of the group of D&D players that comes over to my house every week. He asks, quote, As a player who has played in a bunch of formats throughout my career, I can safely say I've never bought into Legacy. So if I was a new player who wanted to buy into the format, what deck would you recommend for its longevity, something that will be competitive for a while, and high-end, should I spend a ton of loot, versus low-end value and why. So there's sort of a lot to unpack there. And there is so much stuff that you can figure out and do in Legacy without ever buying a card. In fact, I highly recommend not buying cards right away and proxying up a whole bunch of different things. But you know Steve, right? Yeah, you know Steve. You play old school with him. Yeah, so I just can't picture Steve not buying cards. Like, he loves cards. He's he's working on his beta set right now. Yeah, you're right. He's going to get the cards anyway. Yeah. Our answer to this question doesn't matter. He's going to get all the dual lands that he needs. But for for somebody else that might not be as savage as Steve, I think that what you really want to do when you're getting into Legacy is figure out what sort of sphere you want to be in. Do you want to play a Brainstorm deck? Are you a prison player at heart that wants to get their Ancient Tombs and City of Traitors and Chalices first? Are you somebody who loves to play control decks and you might be able to just get your one Tundra and play Miracles. It's really tough to figure out what deck you want to play in Legacy without really playing it. You're almost never going to choose the deck that sort of feels like home to you the first time. So getting as much experience in the format without buying anything, I think is super important. 
And as you get more experience, you'll be sort of drawn to a certain archetype that you really enjoy playing. And I really think that people should figure out that before making huge investments into the format. But that's just the advice that I'd give. I think that's great advice in in general in the dark. I think that's good advice. There's those different on ramps like Manalist Dredge, LED Dredge to Ant, those sort of on ramps. But knowing Steve, Steve, you want to play Merfolk. That's the deck that you're looking for. I think that's the deck you'd find the most fun. It's a competitive deck. It's timeless deck as far as I know. It cycles in and out of you know being a good or bad meta choice. But no one can say it's not like a consistent tier two deck, right? No, I don't know, man. I, I, I could just picture him playing that, right? Can you? Uh, sure. Or Pox. He plays Mono Black sometimes in old school. Okay, I think, yeah, I think old school is different. James, what what advice would you give to somebody who's sort of new to Legacy and wants to play, but hasn't figured out what they want to play yet? I think you have to really understand your own temperament and spectrum on as a legacy player in terms of what you really want to achieve because there are going to be players there are going to be people like myself who are very spiky and just want to win as much as possible and there are going to be players that are more into playing off the wall decks or certain combinations of things that they particularly enjoy or maybe there's some nostalgic reason for the, for them to play goblins or affinity or something like that. I think the first thing you have to do is you have to be very honest with yourself in terms of what you actually want to do. I've seen a lot of players, they want to play off-the-wall off decks, but they don't enjoy losing. Or they really want to be a spike and they are not willing to buy into tier 1 decks because of budget. And then they end up playing budgetized versions of the decks and getting frustrated so i would just say that the first advice you gave tom is really good definitely be willing to borrow decks or proxy decks to figure out what you like and don't like but you also have to be very honest with yourselves in term with yourself in terms of your long-term goals in this format generally speaking i would say that it's good to get cards that are considered pillars of the format such as leds or force of wills things like that but the most important thing is just to figure out how long you're going to be in the format and what 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 style you want to be in and also what your temperament is as a as a legacy player. I think that's great advice. All right, what else do we got? I think that's it, bro. I'm about to catch some Monday night football. So, James, thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy.